Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, good morning. This is February 4th, and this is the fifth lesson of of the book of Job, covering Job 3, 1 through 26. So good to see you. Hi, Pine. Good to see you. Thank you. As we closed last week, we were uh, thinking about uh, what is the devil's role, what is he doing today? And uh, we talked about how he still is an instrument of, of the Lord in in our lives can still be used of God to test and sift believers. We talked about uh, Peter, and we talked about uh, Paul and his thorn. And so we know he can still do that. First Peter 5 says he still prowls around like a roaring lion, uh, seeking whom he may devour. But something has changed since the, since the time of Job. And I just want us to look at that just for a moment. So let's turn to Colossians 2. It'll be fun to, to unpack this more, but we don't, don't have time if we're going to stay in Job. But I think it's so important that we have a, a gospel lens on what is the same about, the, about Job's situation and what is different about it now. So in Colossians 2, let's just read. Uh, I forgot to pray, so we need to we should do that. So we, our Father, we do come before you now. We, we do praise you and worship you um, simply because of your greatness and your grandeur. We thank you for your great love and compassion uh, for your people that you've shown us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have gathered here today uh, because of that, because you've gathered us to yourself. And now we find ourselves gathered to one another as brothers and sisters. We thank you for your word that you have left for us today and how you have given us this great treasure. And we pray for the ministry of your spirit to open the word of God, your word to us, open our eyes and our hearts to see it, to believe it and to obey it. And that may we see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in new and fresh ways today. We pray in his name. Amen. So now in... uh, Colossians 2. Stacy, we're talking about what's different now since Job and Satan. So we talked about that earlier, two or three weeks ago. So we're finally getting to that just just for a moment. So we're in Colossians 2, and um, we can literally just kind of run over the top of this, this thought, but it's really good. So Colossians 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses, trespasses and circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And here's how he did it. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So our, we had this record of debt uh, because we've broken God's law and and that we're under his judgment because of that. And I, I can't ever remember all the words, but I just love the little um, chorus uh, 
We owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. And there's more to it than that, but I, that's such a simple way to think of the gospel. So he's forgiven us all of our trespasses in verse 14 by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So he's, he's satisfied those legal demands. The Lord Jesus satisfied that for us. And we don't have to satisfy it ourselves. And, but isn't it interesting that the next verse, he talks about how that, um, how that uh, satisfying the legal demands uh, disarmed the rulers and authorities, which would include Satan and his, and his angels that were, uh, they were armed against us. And we're going to see that more clearly in a, in a few minutes. But how did he disarm the rulers and authorities by his death and satisfaction? Well, I, I guess we've already talked about it, so we don't have to say it again, but he disarmed them because uh, they no longer have grounds for accusing us. And so even though they may still do that, God doesn't listen to their accusations because there's no grounds. Legally, there's no grounds for them to accuse us any longer. So he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in, in the cross. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 12 and uh, look at this. Now we have the scene in heaven. And I, uh, I read Pastor Justin's sermon on Revelation 12. So I know I got this right. <laughs> well, he got it right too, I think, with a real solid real solid biblical exposition here. So chapter 12 is a beautiful chapter, Revelation chapter 12. The first part of the chapter is full of imagery and, and speaks of uh, the woman who is Israel and the woman becomes Mary, so to speak, and, the, and her child is born and, and, uh, and is caught up into heaven uh, to God's throne in verse 5. And then the woman fled into the wilderness. Now the woman becomes the church. So this woman's quite, quite multi-dimensional in her identity. But uh, you can see that what has happened now is at the end of verse six, we see that um, that uh, historically, time-wise, what has happened is this is the the death and resurrection and the victory of Christ. So if you can go back to if you think back to Colossians. Three, this is where he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So now we see a corresponding battle in heaven. So I'll just, I just read this uh, real quick and then we'll move on. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now just let that sink in a minute. I don't know what all that means, but it means something. There's no longer a place for them in heaven. And I, I think that it refers back to that strange thing we saw in the, in the book of Job, this, this council, that they're no longer welcome in this, in this council. Um, in verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, 
now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And now look at this really good, real good insight here. Um, yeah, let's see. In the middle of verse 10. The, for the, the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So I think that's the key difference. He's still prowling around and still, and still attacks God's people. And he, uh, he still um, is used of God under God's sovereignty to, to, uh, to bring sifting and discipline to God's people. But he no longer can accuse us. He no longer can. There's no legal, there's no legal um, uh, basis for him to accuse God's people any longer because the legal demands have been satisfied by our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know how to, how to express this, but um, if he tries to accuse us before the throne of God, God doesn't listen. There's no there's no accusation that that he can that he will receive. Now he can still accuse us, and we need to know what to do with that. We need to when he accuses us, um, we need to know to go to the cross and remember what Christ has done there, or if we've sinned, to confess our sins and find find forgiveness and cleansing there again. So there's a whole lot more we should we could do with that, but I think that's a beautiful reminder to us of. Of, of what Christ has provided for us. Any word before we get back to Job? There is a really interesting passage that I would love to go to sometime. Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, um, oh, verses 23 and following. We're not going to go there, but I just can't stand to not mention it to you. Um, in this passage, there's the sense that, that there's an accusation against God about Old Testament saints that he's let, that David and Abraham, they've sinned, but he hasn't brought any judgment on them. But, uh, um, but we see there that God shows his righteousness that he brings all their sins forward and Christ pays for them also. So it's just a really interesting uh, perspective that that God is showing that he's righteous and, and righteous in himself and righteous when he declares righteous those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. Okay, now let's go back to, to Job and we're going to look at this, um, this chapter 3. Hopefully we'll be able to get, get through it uh, today. You can see some quotes I have there that this chapter uh, is the darkest chapter in the book. Christopher Ash uh, says that. I, I read in his commentary that he preached he preached through Job three at an evening service at his church, and he said that they didn't sing. They sang no hymns, no songs, and he just makes the point that. He said, most of us came with joy and delight to be together as God's people. He said, but we, he wanted that evening uh, for, the, for his congregation to sit quietly and uh, listen to the suffering of this man and weep with one who was weeping. And I think that's a good, 
a good perspective for us as we think about uh, this, uh, this chapter. The darkest chapter in the book. Now we are taken inside Job's heart and made to feel his anguish. Here is Job trying, to, trying desperately to get his experience and his faith together. Um, he's, Job has the classic conundrum happening with him now. His experience doesn't match up with his faith of what he thought, of, of how he thought God would act and how God would behave. Um, does the atheist have this conundrum, this conflict? He doesn't. He may be upset about suffering or suffering in the world, but it can't be an accusation against God because he doesn't doesn't have faith in God. So this is this is why we have these problems, why we have these these conflicts. It's not because we don't believe in God and have a high view of God, but because we do. And that's, you know, maybe that's the whole point of the book of Job in, uh, in some ways. Um, we're going to see, in, in, when his uh, quote friends begin to comfort him, that they have a theology of, uh, some call it theology of retribution, that if you sin, uh, you're going to be uh, you're going to suffer because of that. And so their point is, Job, you're suffering, so it's obvious you know, that you've sinned. Well, Job has the same theology. But his point is, uh, I'm innocent and I'm suffering and I don't know why. And that's, so the word, the, the question why is really, uh, really a big one there. Uh, chapter 3 is not technically part of this dialogue that goes on I guess you could include God in the dialogue that goes on to the end of the book. Uh, now, it's a soliloquy. I had to look that up again to be sure I know what that is. A soliloquy is talking to yourself. And, and so he's apparently sitting in this ash pile and he's talking apparently out loud and we can assume that these, these friends are hearing what he says because, because we're going to see, particularly in Eliphaz, uh, he's responding to what Job has said during, uh, uh, in his uh, lament uh, in chapter 3. And of course God is listening, uh, listening as well. But the, the actual cycle of the, of the dialogue doesn't start until, um, until next week. By the way, it won't start next week. I won't be here next week. Um, we'll have a combined class with, with Jeff. And um, we'll be going to the uh, counseling conference in uh, Lafayette, Indiana. So I'll miss being with you there. But two weeks from today, the Lord willing, we'll, we'll look at Eliphaz and the first, the, uh, the first cycle of discussions. But let's remember that <clears throat> this is a poem, and that's a challenge for me. I've told you I've been trying to learn about poetry. And I've grown very fond of uh, George Herbert. He was a, a, uh, a poet in the 17th century. Did I tell you I asked the Wiley Library if they had a poetry reading group? <laughs> well, I, I, I like to go there and study. Uh, and so I, I was leaving a couple weeks ago, and I, and, I, and I stopped by the checkout desk. I said, does the Wiley Library have a, a poetry reading group? And she said, no, but you want to start one? 
I said, no, I'm a novice. I'm trying to, I'm an old man. I'm trying to get caught up real quick. She said, well, I'll, I'll give you the number of our library, and I'm sure she would love you to start it. Anyway, Ralph and I have been reading George Herbert, so. Uh, but it's poetry. Remember, poetry reaches not only our mind, but our affections, our thoughts, I mean, our, uh, uh, our feelings. And so let's be careful as we read this chapter and all the rest of them until the last chapter of the book that we are reading poetry. And so it's reaching to our emotions too. So and, and keep in mind that uh, this is a poem spoken by a man that's really distressed. I mean, he has really been through it, suffering greatly. And so it, let's not be surprised if some strange things come out of his mind. Uh, because of what he's what he's going through, we'll see that in a few minutes. Um, let's see. Hartley, I think, divides this chapter into two halves of 26 lines each, verse verse one through 13, and then 14 through 26. He labels one the curse that Job makes, and then the the second half the uh, uh, the, the lamentation. And it's kind of hard to see if that all is fits just right, but it kind of gives us some kind of structure that there's a that there's a curse. The first half is a curse. The second half is uh, his lamentation. You can see this quote uh, from David Klein's: "The presence of turmoil and the absence of rest is the dominant theme uh, of this poem." And I I just I've been immersed in it, you know, for the last uh, week and. And it is fascinating to see the structure and to see the things that that um, uh, that Job uh, that Job says. But let's be careful that we don't become so enamored with the poetic device that we lose the point. You know, what's this? What is this chapter here for? And I don't know if I have the, the answer for you, but <clears throat> let's just recognize we're seeing a man that's suffering every way imaginable, physically, uh, grief. Isolation and alone, depressed, anxious, and fearful. But I think what we see here is that's not his greatest suffering. His greatest suffering is mental, and he asks this question of why? Why is this happening to me? And he's going to spend the rest of the book trying to understand why this is happening. His friends don't help him at all with this, with this, with this question. Well, let's read verses. Uh, you know, the other thing I think we see, he asks why, but who's he asking why? He's not asking his friends or his wife, he's asking, he's asking God. You know, this is, so this gets really serious about, uh, you know, is he, is he coming close to what Satan said he would do? Is he going to curse God? He's asking God, why is this happening? And he gets, he challenges as the Lord, kind of like, Aren't you in touch with what's going on down here? Why are you letting this happen? Well, let's read uh, Job 3, 1 through 5. <clears throat> after this, after he had, <clears throat> his friends had been there sitting in silence with him for seven days, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. <clears throat> so we see the, the topic of the first part of this chapter. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. So notice verse 3, interesting, isn't it? 
he's he's speaking of the day of his birth, but also the day of his conception. So they're nine months apart, I guess. He's talking about two different <coughs> two different events. <coughs> but uh, one writer said that's just <coughs> a poetic way of referring to his to his origin, uh, though they're they're nine months apart. Okay, uh, verse four. Let that day, the day of his birth, be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That, now let's stop there. So, <clears throat> he's going to talk about the day of, the, the night of his conception, but now he's talking about the day of his birth, and he kind of brings them uh, together. But notice, uh, what he says in verses four and five, uh, he wants he he wants to line backwards the creation of that day. Isn't that interesting? There was some thought that God uh, that God creates each day specifically as they go along, and he's saying, "God, uncreate that day. I don't want it to even exist." And it is really turn back quickly to Genesis chapter. One and, and notice that he is literally uh, rewinding Genesis one, you know, the first of the creation. So notice, you know, Genesis one verses two through five is the creation of the first day, and it starts with void and gloominess and um, turmoil. And then it gradually becomes a day. And, and notice, I'm going to read this to us, but notice Job is saying, I want to rewind this back to where this day didn't exist. So listen to what, uh, verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the darkness the light from the darkness. And God saw the light, called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning of the first day. So if you read that, you could almost start at verse 5 in uh, Job 3 and read it backwards and you'd have the creation story. Isn't that interesting? I don't know really what to, to do with that. Um, but notice that even in this, God is, I mean, Job is engaging God. Only the Creator could do this. So he's engaging God in, in, uh, in this. He wants the day to be re-engulfed in darkness and chaos. Uh, Job seeks to become totally non-existent. He's going to say that in a little bit different way in, in a minute. Um, I mean, as we look at it. Um, but he, he wants that that day would never have existed. Um, does that remind you of a Christmas movie? George Bailey and Clarence, the, the angel. Is that kind of the same kind of thing? The theology's not neat, not near us. Anyway, um, but that's what George Bailey said. I don't. I want to never have existed, and and, uh, and that was uh, that. I think that's what Job is is trying to say. Well, verses six through eight. Now he comes. Uh, to the night, the night of his uh, conception. 
That night, uh, let dark, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. He's saying, God, take it out of the calendar. When when people go look at the calendar, that day is not going to be there. Because if, if that day was not there, then I won't be here either. Isn't that weird. Okay. Uh, so verse 7. Behold, let that night be barren, and let no joyful cry enter it. You know the idea of barrenness. God closes and opens the wombs of, of women, and he's saying, I, he's, again, I think he's speaking to God here. He said, I, I wish my mother's womb was closed and that I was never, uh, never conceived. Now, verse 8 is really strange. Because um, now I don't think he's speaking to the Lord. He's, he's speaking to, I don't know, some kind of wizard or some kind of... I mean, remember, this is a man writing poetry. That his mind is kind of scrambled because of all of his suffering. So I think he's trying for anything to, to uh, express his great, uh, his great concern. Uh, verse... Eight, let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Wow, isn't that interesting? Um, by the way, the commentator, well, the commentators have some pretty good thoughts about, about this. That maybe there was some cultural kind of idea that there were wizards in the land and they could bring a curse on the day or something like that. I don't want to say they're worshiping them or, or seeking after them. But then he said that they can rouse up Leviathan. Now, Leviathan, you know, this big monster uh, sea, sea creature. We're going to see him again in, uh, let's see, chapter where, at the end when God speaks. Yeah, 41. And the Lord says, I kind of play with Leviathan like a, like a pet. But... Uh, but Leviathan in the Bible is known as, as a power that's against God's order and against God's, uh, God's authority. Really interesting in Psalm 74, 14, speaks of, the, the, of God's delivering the, the Israelites out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. It's just really interesting that in the parting of the Red Sea, whoever wrote Psalm 74 says there God overcame the sea monsters and, and uh, neutralized Leviathan. So, whatever you do with that, um, what do you want to do with that? Anybody have some insight for us? It's just weird, isn't it? Well, if, we, if I was going through what, what uh, Job was, I would have some weird thoughts too, I think. I think he's just as you're saying he wants God to uncreate the day. He wants to release whatever powers on earth there are against yeah. that day. That's probably the, the biggest one. I, I think so. It just again reminds me of uh, Richard Wormbrand being tortured in prison, and his theology got kind of goofy. Not blasphemous, but he said, "Don't don't hold me too tightly to some of the things I said in prison because you know I was being tortured and I was struggling." Okay. Um, now, verses 9 and 10. 
speaking of that that night and day, I think he's kind of combining the 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 day of the night of his conception and the day of his birth now. Verse nine, let the stars of its dawn be dark. So the day hasn't begun yet. It's still dark, so we're back to this creation motif. But he said, I don't even want there to be any light to come in on this day. But what are the, what are the, uh, verse uh, 9, what are the stars of the dawn? Well, we have a couple of planets that we call the morning stars, don't we? What are they? So Venus is one. Venus and I looked it up. Mercury. Those are the, you see them, you know, as the as the night is waning and the the sun is about to rise. You see these. One of them, particularly Venus, I guess I don't remember. But he's saying, no, I don't even want this day to see those to see those lights before the sun comes up. I want this day to stay to stay dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. And and here's why. Because that day did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. And so, if I could get rid of this day, I'd get rid of my trouble, is what he's saying there. Uh, Do you think Job really thinks that can happen? I don't think so. In In his sane moments, he knows that... Nobody, God's not going to rewind the calendar and take away that day and take away his his existence. But it really shows the depth of his distress and anxiety and and that his his I think we can say his greatest goal is to be is to be free from this from what's happening. And again, not only free from his physical mental, emotional distress, but free from this question. Why is this happening? This is what really uh, really gets to him, I think. Um, interesting, uh, let's see. Yeah, verses 11, uh, verses 11 and 12. Why did I not die at birth? So he says, if I had to be born, then why couldn't I just die at birth? Maybe a stillborn or maybe um, yeah, verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Uh, why, did the knee, why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? Now, the commentators say that the knees could be his father. His father could have, on the moment of his birth, the midwife gave the baby to the father, and he you know, put the, shows the affection of the father. Um, they probably think more it involves the mother, the warmth of the mother, baby on his knees, nursing, and just the warmth and love and beauty of that of that moment. And so look at what Job is saying. He's saying, as much as that was surely a wonderful, nurturing experience for me, because of my distress, I would even give that up to get out of the mess that I'm that I'm in. <clears throat> so. Um, um, let's see. Uh, so verse 13. Verse 13 is... Oh, oh, verse 12. 
Verse 12, notice it starts with another question. And when we, when we begin to think about lament, one of the key words in a lament is why. That's one of the key words in the, in the Psalms of lament. We'll maybe have time to see that in a few minutes. So it's kind of hard to see. Maybe the lament starts at verse 11. Uh, one writer said if he liked the idea of dividing the chapter um, in 13 verses apiece, so the lament didn't actually start till till 14. But it doesn't really matter. But but he is beginning to mix his lament with his curse uh, here. So um, yeah. So now verse uh, 13. <coughs> Notice in verse 13, Job piles up four consecutive images of rest. Lay down, be quiet, sleep, and, and rest. Um, for then, if I had not ever been born, he says, or if I had died at birth, then I could just lay down and be quiet. I could, uh, I could have slept. I could lay down, I could be quiet, I could have slept, I would have been at rest. Um, that's what he longs for but he's not longing for physical rest at night he's longing for for death he, he says that in a kind of a sense of non-existence but he's really longing for, for death we'll see that more clearly uh, in a few minutes <clears throat> just notice verse 13 is almost a carbon copy of verse 26 <clears throat> except in verse 26 he doesn't have these descriptions of rest, and so therefore uh, he's got he's he's this trouble, this turmoil is is upon him. Okay, so now Job's uh, lament. Job Job turns from cursing the day of his birth to lamenting his agony and longing and searching for relief. And to him, that's that's to no longer be alive. Now, um, he's not—he's not wishing. He's not in. He's not considering suicide. He doesn't want to take his own life. His theology won't let him do that. But he would be happy. He would be glad for God to take his life. Okay. So um, let's read fourteen through nineteen. Well, it's interesting. Fourteen is a continuation of. 13. <clears throat> and it's strange what he says, and the commentators aren't sure what to do with it. With, but now he's, he's turning his focus toward Sheol, the place of the dead. So keep that in mind. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or why was I not hidden? Uh, why was I not as a hidden stillborn child as infants who never see the light. There the wicked cease, there in, in, in the Sheol, in the place of the dead, there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Um, this idea about the, these three groups, kings, counselors, and, and uh, let's see, kings, counselors, and princes, because those are upper level 
upper level people, and he probably would have considered himself maybe in that in that group. But they just don't know they don't know what to do with it. Um, so I don't either. Um, but they're there. The, the point I think he's making is they're there in Sheol, just like the lower classes are, the slaves, the prisoners, uh, the other places. Uh, and Sheol is the rest that Job longs for. The weary are at rest, the prisoners are at ease, the slave is free from the taskmaster. This is the same experience for all uh, small and great. Interesting thing includes he says the wicked cease from troubling and I mean maybe in a worldly sense but you know, eternal punishment on the other side so just interesting that he would include them and makes it sound like he's envious of them having died that they're somehow at rest yeah and that boy Michael that gets us to this whole point is what's our understanding of Sheol is it a place of a holding place, or is it? A, is there torment for evil? And it's indicated pretty heavily that back then people didn't have much knowledge of an afterlife. Even they, could, they thought there was something afterward, but they didn't really know any details. I think that's right. Trusted God yeah. would take care of things, basically. Right. Um, so I, it seems that that the, the main point that Job that Job has about Sheol, it's a place of death, a place of death. And I won't be in, he thinks I won't be in turmoil there if I'm there. So whether he's got that all right, I don't, I mean, he, is, he does seem to be clearly, obviously God says he's a man of sincere faith. So we, um, we can ask Job about this one day. He'll be in heaven with us. Um, so maybe, this, maybe the wicked aren't the same as the weary. Maybe yeah. we should equate the wicked with the weary, is what I'm saying. We should. In, should. in the parallel, in, in, the, in, the, in the verse. That we should equate them? Or? I'm, I'm thinking maybe we shouldn't. I think, I think so. Right. And, and maybe he's even referring... Because is a place for the, rich, the righteous and the unrighteous. Right, yeah. And, and the wicked aren't going to be making trouble down there. But yeah. the weary are going to find rest. So. And maybe he's thinking about the Sabians and the Chaldeans. You know, they caused all kinds of trouble for him. Anyway, but the point is, in his mind, if I could just get there, I, I would be fine. I'd be happy with that, whether that's accurate or not. Okay, so now let's keep uh, moving. Let's read verses uh, 20, to 20, 20 to 23. So now here's another why. He's asked why in verse 11, verse 12, verse... 20 and then you'll see also in verse 23 so verse 20 why is light given to him who is in misery in life to the bitter in soul so who's he asking this question to who's the only one that could answer this God. only God yeah so he's he's engaging the Lord he's doing it kind of third party Lord there's this group over here that are bitter and misery, miserable so why do you keep letting the sun rise on them. Uh, he's going to get personal here in a minute. <clears throat> Why is light given uh, to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Um, and look at this, isn't this interesting? They long, this group longs for death, but it doesn't come. And, and they're like the uh, gold diggers in California. They are searching for death. Like 
a treasure hunter would search for treasures and they can't and they can't find it. Or is that strange? Um, but it just shows the, the depth of his angst and his anxiety. Verse 22, and they rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they, when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? And it seems now he's turning this personally speaking of himself. And uh, I thought about this this morning when I woke up a little bit later, the sun was coming up. And it was a happy moment. Oh, good, the sun's coming up. God's given us another day. And light brings a sense of life and, and light and joy. But what Job says here is, not for us. It just reminds us that our, we have another day of suffering. So we don't like the sunlight. We don't like the sun, the sunshine. Um, but could we keep this in mind as we think about friends and brothers and sisters that are going through him? enormous suffering and mental trial and depression and anxiety uh, when they say, I just don't like to get up in the morning. Well, <clears throat> he says in, in verse uh, 23, in, interestingly, he says, my way is hidden. God, I don't even know if God sees me or not. God doesn't seem to be attentive to me. And he's hedged me in. Now, what did Satan talked about God hedging him in, but what kind of hedge was that? Protection. It was for protection. This is just the opposite. Job sees a hedge that God's put around him. It's not for protection. It's to keep out or keep him in, trapped, or to keep out uh, good things that could, uh, that could help him. One, uh, <clears throat> yeah, look at my note there under verses 20 and 22. Um, I asked, Job feels like a man on a life support machine who longs for it to be switched off. <clears throat> so he's not going to switch it off himself. He's not suicidal, but he wished that somebody would, uh, would turn it off. Um, <clears throat> now Job speaks in the first person. We talked about the, the heads. <clears throat> Verse 24, for my sign comes instead of my bread and my groanings are poured out like water. Uh, both of the, the commentaries I read said the word sign is much too tame. It's the shrieking. It, it's the same word used of the, of the um, Israelite slaves in Egypt when they cried out to God. And I, I don't remember if it's the groaning or the crying out. And God heard their cry from heaven. And he, you know, he came to deliver them food. Uh, through Moses. So Job says, my shrieks are my daily diet. Oh, the, groan, the groans are like the Israelite slaves. Um, remember David's cry in Psalm 22. We know verse 1 because the Lord Jesus quoted it. Uh, my God, my God. Why? why? There's that why in the Lamentation Psalms. Why have you forsaken me? Verse 2 Verse 2, listen to verse 2 and place it, I mean, Psalm 22, 2, and you can place it over this verse 24. Uh, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. <coughs> well, I think what we're beginning to see, and Christopher S. brings this out so clearly, that Job really is a prefiguring of Christ. 
the innocent suffering. Uh, obviously, there's a few different dimensions, but the same, you can carry them forward uh, together in a, a good ways. Okay, now, um, verse 25. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. Uh, he didn't tell us what that is. Um, you know, I ask myself this. I'll ask you this morning. Um, what are your fears and dreads? I've got a couple. I'm almost ashamed to talk about them. I, um, well, I, got a, I have a bunch of them. You know, when you begin to think about what are the things you're concerned about, your kids or grandkids or your personal faith, or you got to persevere to the end. If we have persecution, will I be able to, to, to last through that? Maybe if we're really honest, we may even have those times of, is the Bible really true? Is there really a God? And those are, are fears. Um, and Job doesn't tell us what they are, and he doesn't get answers about those yet. Uh, he will get answers, obviously, in chapter 20, I mean, 38, I think, 37 is when God begins uh, to speak with him. I just, we just read in our prayer meeting this morning that uh, Justin read from Psalm uh, 30, 34. And he read that, that verse, I cried out to the Lord and he delivered me from all my fears. Well, Job Kent, he said, I cried out to the Lord and he then delivered me from my fears. So... That's kind of the conundrum here, isn't it? Why hasn't God, why is God silent at this, at this time? Um, well, then the climax is verse uh, 26. <clears throat> he has uh, no ease, no rest, no quiet. And that's what leads to the last word in the theme of this chapter. Uh, trouble, tor turmoil, and, uh, and torment. This is torment, not just of the body, but uh, terrible as though that is, but of the soul. <clears throat> Another author that I read is a guy named Atkinson. He says, uh, and I'll read it to you twice. God is now the hidden God, whose presence is known only in the darkness of his absence. God is now the hidden God to Job whose presence is known only in the darkness of his absence. So Job is not an atheist in this path, in this, and that's the problem, isn't it? He says, God, where are you? You know, you're not acting like I thought you were supposed to act, and that's the, that's the challenge. It is really interesting to me, I think Job is only mentioned one time in the New Testament, and that's in James 5, uh, 10 or 11, James is looking back to the Old Testament saying let's persevere like the Old Testament saints did. And he said behold we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now that's interesting. The one comment about Job in the New Testament is his steadfastness. He doesn't look very steadfast in chapter 3 does he? I guess that's maybe at the end of the book. Um, and then it says, uh, you have seen that you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how he is compassionate and merciful. So what an interesting commentary on the book of Job that 
in 13 more weeks, maybe we'll see that ourselves. I wanted to give you just a few thoughts about lament, and I, you can see the, the uh, footnote. Uh, I've gained so much from uh, Mark Vogue. Ro- Ro- How do you want to say that, Christy? Vogue. Ro- uh, uh, these books, uh, Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy. And then uh, he has a devotional that goes with that. Anyway, I just really encourage you to learn about lament. Uh, he calls it, he calls, lament is the lost grace of the modern evangelical world. We don't like lament. But you know, a third of the Psalms are Psalms of Lamentations. Asking why, where are you, God? They get real strong. I just want you to look at that one with me, and I'm literally just at one verse. Psalm 88. Bogrop. Bogrop says, in all of the lament psalms, they have these four points. They, the writer turns to God. He complains about something, about God or his circumstances. He asks God for something, and then his trust and faith is renewed. Psalm 88 only has the first three. <clears throat> the, the psalmist uh, turns to God, he complains, he asks, but his faith is not renewed. Because usually by the end of the psalm, you have that expression. But look at what verse 18, this is Psalm 88, verse 18. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And I like the ESV um, the ESV note darkness has become my only companion darkness has become my only companion I thought well this is Job's psalm he's got three points of the of the, of the lamentation but he doesn't yet have the, the, the fourth one darkness is still his um, his companion well uh, Lord we're going to see you in a couple of weeks and Boy, then the work really starts. We get into these weird things that his friends say and Job's response to them. But apparently we need to do that for about 37 chapters so we can see the, you know, go down the journey and see how it ends. So next week that door will be open and Jeff will give you some good Baptist theology and who knows what all, but we know it'll be good. Thank you.